what is Bob Dylan, right? That's what we're trying to figure out here in what I'm calling a Bob Dylan primer. So far, I'm planning about a dozen episodes that start with Dylan being born, busily being born and growing up, and finishing somewhere around the album Time Out of Mind in 1997. And the goal, if there is one, is that by mashing up my own personal thoughts about Dylan with a recorded history, that we can tell a story that will appeal to Dylan newbies and also those wizened folks who love Dylan's music and feel they already know a lot about him. That's the plan for now, anyway. And this is the second episode of A Bob Dylan Primer. I'd like to alert you to the website for this series, which can be found at abobdylanprimer.com, and where you'll find links to some cool content related to what you're hearing here. Once again, that's abobdylanprimer.com. Please check it out. In this episode, number two in the series, we're going to take a look at about 15 months in Bob Dylan's career, where he went from being a shooting star to a cannonball, and we'll leave off just as he's poised to make the biggest noise yet. This is a Bob Dylan primer, episode two, The Voice of a Generation. In 1962, Dylan's first album, called Bob Dylan, was released, and it didn't sell very much, about 5,000 copies, and was a pretty big disappointment at Columbia Records. But Dylan himself was basically on a rocket ship. Nothing was going to stop him now, and his songwriting kind of erupted. He had absorbed all these influences at warp speed, and then he sort of primed the pump by writing Talk in New York and Song to Woody on the first record. And from then on, he just kept writing at a phenomenal pace, sometimes knocking off several songs in a single day. One month after the release of the first album, the 21-year-old Dylan got up on stage at Gertie's Folk City, the club where he'd made his New York debut the year before, and he sang two verses of a new song. The song was called Blowin' in the Wind, one of the greatest songs ever written, and probably the greatest protest song of all time. It's a song that transformed protest music into poetry and became an anthem almost overnight. Even though the song was recorded and released on Dylan's next album, it created an enormous buzz among folk music fans in the U.S. and England right away. The thing is, obviously, this happened long before there was anything like the Internet. But in some ways, a kind of Internet already existed, in the sense that people had ways of disseminating information and culture rather quickly. And what happened with Blown in the Wind is a wonderful example of that. So Dylan sang the song at Gertie's one night in April 1962, and there was someone in the audience with a tape recorder, which was pretty common back then. And that tape got copied and circulated among the inner circle of folk music aficionados. And the following month, in May 1962, the lyrics and chords to the song were published in a magazine called Broadside that was read by everyone interested in folk music, and everybody that encountered the song recognized that it was something special. No one heard the song and thought, no big deal. So through the spring and summer of 1962, the Underground Folk Railroad was buzzing about this new kid who could really write songs. At the end of 1962, through his manager, Dylan got invited to be in a play in London. So he flew to England and spent about six weeks there, living in a hotel, rehearsing this play during the day and hanging out with British folk singers at night. And he really got into smoking pot heavily around this time. Lots of people have commented on how much he liked pot back then, and it's fairly certain that he later turned the Beatles on for the first time. 
again, pre-internet. And then Dylan returned to New York City in January 1963 and finished recording the tracks that would make up his second record. That spring, Dylan was booked to play the Ed Sullivan Show, which at that time was the absolute biggest launching pad to instant stardom in America. The following year, in February 1964, an appearance on the show did wonders for four guys from England who called themselves the Beatles. Anyway, Dylan's booked for May 12, 1963, which was two weeks before the new album was supposed to come out. So this was a very, very big deal. During rehearsal, a Columbia executive heard the song that Dylan was planning to sing on the broadcast, Talkin' John Birch Paranoid Blues, and freaked out. The song is about the rampant anti-communist hysterica that was still running through the country in 1963, 15 years after the House Un-American Committee hearings led by that rabid dog, Senator Joe McCarthy. The record company told Dylan either to sing a different song or change a few lines in the song to make them less objectionable. Dylan refused to change the song and refused to perform. Let me say that again. 21-year-old Dylan refused to perform. He turned down the chance to expose himself to an audience of 10 million people on principle. His first record sold 5,000 copies, remember. Try to imagine a struggling artist today taking a similar stand. It happens, but not too often. And CBS banned the song from the album, which was released without it on May 27, 1963, entitled The Free Willin' Bob Dylan. Free Willin' with an apostrophe and no G at the end. Let's talk about the album cover for a minute, which is one of the most iconic of all album covers. It's a photo of Dylan and his then-girlfriend, Suze Rotolo, and they're huddled arm-in-arm walking down a funky, snow-covered street in Greenwich Village. Dylan never again offered up such a wonderfully appealing image for an album cover, and even today, the photo just makes you want to jump into the scene and accompany Dylan and his girl on their stroll through the neighborhood. They look so truly happy and at ease. You just either want to be with them or be them. So you've got the Free Willin' album starting off with Blowin' in the Wind, the life-changing Blowin' in the Wind, followed up by Girl from the North Country, a heartbreakingly poignant love song about memory and early love. And then a few songs later, there's a song that closes the first side of the record, A Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall. I'm not going to say too much about Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, except to say that it's almost seven minutes long, which was jaw-dropping in 1963. Also, a lot of people seem to think the song is about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that the phrase hard rain refers to some kind of nuclear threat, but I would take a close listen to see if you agree. To me, it's always seemed that the hard rain Dylan sings about is a kind of all-cleansing and positive force that was about to break over society to wash away the sins of the past. Anyway, I'll try and stay away from interpreting songs too much, just wanted to get those two cents in. So, back in the heyday of record albums, a lot of artists used to put particular emphasis on the songs that closed the first side and opened the second side, probably because they wanted to motivate you to flip the record over, right? So, Free Willin's first side ends with Hard Rain, and then the second side opens with a song called Don't Think Twice, It's Alright. Don't Think Twice might be the first Dylan song that is truly Dylan-esque in the way that it uses language. It's a breakup song that's full of cutting irony, along with some great tenderness. But the thing that makes it Dylan-esque is that half a century later, the song still raises questions in the mind of the listener. And you think you got it the first time you heard it, but as you listen to it over the years, 
It changes through time, as you change, as the listener changes. That's certainly true of songs by other artists, but I don't think anyone has been able to create as many songs that have that quality as Dylan has. And also, no one's been able to write so many songs that have this quality to such a great extent. Where his songs paradoxically are both unsolvable mysteries that are also able to continue to deliver real insight to his audience. impact of the Free Willin' album and the song Blowing in the Wind was huge. The image and sound of Bob Dylan on that album was so powerful that to this day, more than 50 years later, people still have that Bob Dylan in their minds as the one, as the ideal, or as the standard from which Dylan is often not allowed to deviate from. Again, he was 22 years old, and that was one record. I mean, how many people do you have in your life from whom you demand that they remain the way they were when they were 22, right? But that's how a lot of people responded to this version of Bob Dylan. Whatever people think, the album is still towering in its achievement of a kind of poetic beauty and insight and redefinition of what a protest song could be, along with some really funny shit and a couple of beautiful love songs. Not bad for a second record. After Free Willin' came the Times Era Changin', released in early 1964, Dylan's third LP, another term going into the dustbin of language, LP, and this record is the most full-blown expression of Bob Dylan as a protest singer. Most of the songs on this album could be called protest songs. The title track, The Times They Are Changing, kicks the album off with a sort of marching guitar strum that shouts, this is an anthem in a pretty clear way. Many of the protest songs on the record are different than traditional protest music in that they have a very heightened sense of irony. The lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, only a pawn in their game, and God on our side. They just bend your mind when you listen to them. And that's why they have so much resonance and can be listened to over such a long period of time. The other thing is, on this record, Dylan's melodic gifts are really starting to come into play, even on a song like Hattie Carroll. The subtlety of his playing and the clarity of his singing are so rich that they allow for a lot of repeat listening. They give you a lot. A few years back, Dylan was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Bruce Springsteen gave the induction speech. And one thing Springsteen said that really stuck with me was that Dylan sounded both young and old at the same time. And these early albums of Dylan's really have that character all the way through. There are only two songs on the Times Era Changin' that are not protest songs in some way. And those two songs are both love songs more specifically breakup songs, as Dylan was starting to split from his first serious girlfriend. The songs are Boots of Spanish Leather and One Too Many Mornings, and I would call both of those songs perfect, in the somewhat startling way that I think many of Dylan's songs are perfect. Now, I guess we all have our different ideas of what perfect means, but for me, in terms of Dylan's songs, I'll just say it's something like a combination of harmonies and contradictions that leads to a perfectly balanced moment of perception in the listener. Just to take a couple of lines from One Too Many Mornings, Dylan sings, You're right from your side and I'm right from mine. We're both just one too many mornings and a thousand miles behind. So there's the wordplay of right and wrong, right and left, 
two rights make a wrong. And then there's the false count of one, two, like how many mornings is one too many. And then he just leaves you devastated because these two people in love are a thousand miles behind. And that's an awfully long way. And then you wonder, behind what? There's a kind of precise imprecision in the language, from the rhymes to the meanings to the rhythm, that creates its own beautiful logic. Speaking of love songs, Dylan was first known as a folk singer, and then a protest singer, and then he went electric, and then he went country, and then he found religion, and lately he's singing Sinatra, and people are always trying to label and define Dylan. But one label that they've missed, for the most part, is writer of love songs. Even this third record already contains several love songs, and the strongest running genre through all of Dylan's phases and changes is the love song. He's written hundreds, and though he's not often thought of as our greatest writer of love songs, I think he could take that title as well. The last song on the Times Era Change in album is a kind of half-spoken, half-strung song called Restless Farewell. And listening to it today, it might sound a little forced or pretentious, but it's still got some beautiful lines and guitar work. And the very last lines of the song are, So I'll take my stand and remain as I am, and bid farewell, and not give a damn. The question of what he was bidding farewell to would soon become obvious, but the sentiment of standing his ground and not giving a damn, which had served Dylan incredibly well up to this point, would become, I would say, almost life-saving in the coming years. So, 1962 brought us the first record, Bob Dylan. The following spring, Free Willin was released, and then, in the fall of 1963, Dylan recorded the tracks that became the Times Era Changin'. And boy were they. Just three weeks after Dylan finished that record, President Kennedy was assassinated. And less than three months after that, the single biggest cultural shift in the history of American pop culture happened, when the Beatles performed on the Ed Sullivan TV show. How would Dylan react to these dual shocks to the American psyche? The first few months of 1964 found Beatlemania dominating the minds of American teenagers. Every week there were multiple Beatle records in the top five of the Billboard charts. Love Me Do, Please Please Me, Twist and Shout, and Do You Want to Know a Secret were monster hits. In the midst of this mop-top madness, on June 9, 1964, Dylan walked into Studio A at Columbia Records in New York City at about 7 o'clock at night. By 10 p.m., he'd recorded 14 songs, 11 of which made it onto Dylan's next album, called Another Side of Bob Dylan. The cohesiveness of the performances and the subtlety of Dylan's guitar playing and the clarity and precision of his voice and vocal delivery is pretty spectacular. The other thing about the record is that it's, in a way, the purest expression of Dylan's personal language and where he was at the moment, a kind of extremely sensitive, hip in the best sense of the word, cool in the best sense of the word, and perceptive sensibility. On the first three records, Dylan was using language that was adapted from traditional forms. And after this record, he often played off of, again, sort of existing or traditional forms, blues forms and song structure and so forth. But this record is really pure in its language, and it's a great joy to listen to it. Also, no one had ever recorded in this sort of pop vein songs of this length. Here comes Dylan walking in with his guitar, no rehearsal, and he just lays these eight-minute tracks down with really complex lyrics and just nails it. He didn't overdub or redo stuff, really, so that was pretty groundbreaking. 
People freaked out when the Beatles came out with Hey Jude in 1968 at 7 minutes and 11 seconds, but this was four years earlier, which was really a lifetime in the time-space continuum of the 1960s. Yes, it was just Dylan on guitar and piano and harmonica, not a whole band, but still, he was really pushing the limits. Another thing that's interesting about Another Side of Bob Dylan is that there's not a single protest song on the record. After the first three records, Dylan was done with protest, or at least overt protest. Still, there's a way in which this record really captured the kind of inner state of youth in America and what was going on, and kind of planted a few seeds that would sprout into the tumult that was about to happen across the country. On a historical note, the day that this record was released, August 9, 1964, was the same day that newspapers across the country reported that Congress overwhelmingly voted to give President Johnson absolute power to wage war in Southeast Asia, aka Vietnam. The big protests against the Vietnam War were still four years away, but here we have this album coming out at the moment that the country is poised for war, and at the moment our government has approved giving carte blanche to the military. And then you look at a song like My Back Pages, which so clearly expresses the kind of confusion, but also the clarity that existed simultaneously in the minds of so many young people in America at that moment, and which would fuel the countercultural revolution that was about to hit the streets. So even though the Beatles perfectly reflected the outward manifestations of being a teenager in 1964, Dylan was pretty much the only musician or writer speaking directly to and for young people as one of their peers, fully expressing their innermost hopes and fears at that moment. On this Another Side album, there's also the song Chimes of Freedom, which is possibly the first psychedelic song, even though it probably wasn't written under the influence of psychedelics, more likely a bottle of Beaujolais. Still, the dreamlike and incantatory quality of the lyrics and the way the song builds through each verse make it pretty special. One note here about this series. You've probably noticed by now that I haven't included any actual music by the actual Bob Dylan, and I'm sure that's frustrating for some of you. The reasons for not including his music are pretty simple. One, I don't have permission to use Dylan's songs, and while I might be able to get away with using very short snippets, I'd rather not tempt fate or copyright lawyers. And while it certainly might be possible to get permission, it would have to be on an episode-by-episode basis, and that would be cumbersome. Also, and probably more importantly, I feel like using Dylan's music would be a little bit of a crutch, a little bit of taking a shortcut. Not using the music makes me work a little harder to tell a story, and hopefully that pays off in the long run. Dylan's music speaks for itself, and what I'm trying to do here is just give some background and context to his work. I'll leave you with this thought. We've got this brilliant young songwriter-poet who's churned out these four great albums in the space of about two years. And for the last album, he recorded all the songs in a single night. But the crazy thing about that recording session is that the most powerful song Dylan recorded that night didn't even make the record. It's probably one of the two or three most significant Dylan songs, but its release to the public would have to wait until the following record. More on that in the next episode of A Bob Dylan Primer. Music for this broadcast was provided by Max Ferguson. Sound designed by John Zalewski. My name is Michael Hacker. Thank you for listening. <laughs>
And if you'd like to hear some of the music referenced, please check out the public playlist I created on Spotify under the name A. Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to lend your support and find supporting content about Bob Dylan. Again, that's abobdylanprimer.com. And thank you very much.